open at Numbers 28. We're going to be looking at offerings and feasts this evening in chapters 28 through chapter 29. Uh, it's a lot of ground to cover, so strap yourselves in. We're going to have to move fast, but we will slam on brakes here and there, as it were, to take in uh, what these sacrifices and feasts point us to. They point us to our need for a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they point us to the fact that we are to live in communion with him. Now, just by way of placing uh, this passage in its biblical context, as we've been working through numbers, remember the first generation have now passed away with the exception of Moses, Joshua, Caleb. In chapter 26, God has taken a census of the second generation. In chapter 27, God has provided them with a new leader in the person of Joshua. And as they find themselves encamped on the plains of Moab, right next to the River Jordan, they are ready, they're getting ready for life in the Promised Land. And so here in chapter 28 and 29 and 30, God has instructions for them of how they will live in right relationship with him. He'd given the first generation uh, the instruction regarding the sacrifices. You can read about it in Exodus. You can read about it very clearly in Leviticus. And here they are given to the second generation in numbers. Now, if you're anything like me, you can easily come to a section that is just filled with repetition regarding sacrifices and offerings and find your, your, your eyes glazing over. Tempted a little to think, can I just rush through this and pass over this? There's, there can't be much for me here, surely. Well, in reality, if we take the time to consider what is before us this evening, we get profound insight into the timeless principles of worshipping the living God. They provide us with the glorious foreshadowing as well of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a better grasp of the gospel, if you want a better understanding of how we're to live out our Christian lives, there's no better place to turn to than the sacrifices and the feasts. So tonight, two headings. We'll think about the sacrifices. They're there in verses 1 through 15, sacrificial offerings, and then we'll consider the feasts uh, offerings from verse 16 through to the end of chapter 29. Now, just so you know, as we come to this section, there is a, a logical arrangement. All the material is very logically arranged. It starts with daily sacrifices, it moves to weekly sacrifices, then monthly sacrifices. And then God turns his attention to the Jewish year, Passover and all the feasts that follow from there on. Now, the first thing you and I need to know about all of these sacrifices that God has ordained is he ordained them. He is the originator and the initiator of worship. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. God says, You worship me and me alone. God also says to his people, That is how he is to be worshipped, by offerings, but he commands them how and when he is to be worshipped. There are appointed times by God for God's people to worship him. And there's a way to worship him. 
And the way to worship God, as he established for his Old Testament people, was via sacrificial offerings. Now, verse 1 and 2 make it clear that the the, the heart of these sacrificial offerings, they they symbolize many things, but at the heart of the ones we're talking about, it's a meal. Food offerings. Now, God is not someone with a body who needs to eat food. But if you understand anything about ancient Near Eastern culture, is that if you want to know the picture of intimacy, of having fellowship with someone, of being accepted by someone, it's a meal. You have a meal with someone and it's you saying, I want to know you, I want to have an intimate relationship with you, come and sit at my table. And this is God's way of saying, you want to have communion with me? We're going to have it via sacrificial offering. But more than that, the sacrificial offerings, there's the various kinds of them, they, they point to the, the various things that God wants to impress upon his people. Our guilt and our sin need to be atoned for. So an animal will be offered in the place of ourselves. Notice that when we read about lambs that are offered, it is without blemish. God is a perfect holy God. And he requires perfect sacrificial offering. In this case, the animal will be burnt up. There will also be a drink offering. Strong fermented drink, either wine or beer. We we don't know. It says in some instances wine for sure, but a strong fermented drink is how some of the translations render it, and it could mean beer. There will be a grain offering. And all of these ways are communicating God wants his people to know that as we come before him, our guilt and our sin need to be dealt with. The shedding of blood points us to the forgiveness of our sins. Now, these are animals, these sacrificial systems. They ultimately, as Hebrews tells us, did not atone for sin, but they pointed in the direction that a person would have to shed their blood to atone for God's people's sins. Now, from verse 3 to verse 8, we get the first sacrifice that God commands, and it's the daily offering. Do you know that if you lived in the promised land with God's people, this is what God was telling them in in, in this opening chapter, is that every single day you would begin by going to the tabernacle and your family head would take a lamb necessary for an offering or buy a lamb necessary for that offering. And he'd go back at twilight and another lamb would be offered. Meaning you would begin the day saying, I'm going to begin my day giving this burnt offering because I want fellowship and communion with the Lord and my sin needs atoned for. And at the end of the day, you would do the exact same thing. And it's fascinating. You read through the Psalms and over and over again, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 89, Psalm 87, Psalm 141, and it's all about morning prayers and evening prayers. God's people bookended their day with communion with the living God. If you lived in the promised land, the most striking thing is you would wake up and the smell that would instantly fill your nostrils was burnt animals. You would walk out and about and all you would see rising above the tabernacle is the smoke of animals. And everyone knew that animals offered in their place was a pleasing aroma to God. He delighted in people recognizing that their sin needed to be atoned for and communion and fellowship with his people 
was essential. And so that's what we have here listed in in verses 3 through 8. It's the day-by-day regular offering. It involved a lamb. It involved flour and oil and a drink offering. Then you get to verses 9 to 10. So every day there's these two lambs being offered, one in the morning, one in the evening, drinks and a grain. But on the Sabbath, which is the Saturday, God's people, the head of the family, presumably, would come with, on the Sabbath, their one lamb for their day-to-day offering and another two male lambs for the Sabbath offering. Along with that, they'd have two tenths of an ephah of fine flour, another grain on mixed with oil and its drink offering. And this would be a burnt offering for every Sabbath. So the smoke, if you like, on the sun, on the Saturday would be even greater. More animals being sacrificed. God saying that on this day, the day that all of God's people knew that after he created the world in six days, he rested and he wanted his people to rest in his creation, rest in his providence and his redemption, but to come and give him that whole day, including giving him more sacrifices. There's not just a Sabbath offering and a day-to-day offering. You get a verses 11 through 15, and there are monthly offerings. Now, we live, our calendar is a solar calendar. All our dating is done by the sun. The Jews, it was a lunar calendar. Every month began with a new moon. And so when the new moon was in the sky... On the first day of the month, you would go and you would give your monthly offerings. So look at what it says, verse 11. At the beginning of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old, without blemish. Also, three tenths of ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for for each bull, and two tenths of fine flour and a grain offering mixed with oil for one ram. And a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil is a grain offering for every lamb. For a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And then there's a drink offering. And all of this was on top of the day-to-day. And if the first of the month fell on a Sabbath, all of this was on top of that. This is how God wanted his people to worship him. He set this up. He appointed this so that it would be oppressed on the minds and the hearts of God's people. Your guilt, your sin means you can have no relationship with me. But if you're going to have a relationship with me, there needs to be atonement. Something needs to die in your place. Its blood needs to be shed, representing the life for another life. And notice the lambs are so key because they're without blemish. And all of this, if we just slam on the brakes for a moment and we know anything about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of these sacrifices offered to the Lord were all in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to I say 
is there anything in these offerings, right, that we could learn practical application from? Well, I do think that I'm not, we can't be legalistic about this, but see a daily offering? I think it is good, wise, and prudent that we as God's people would begin our days with the Lord. And that we as God's people would end our days with the Lord. I think it's good and wise that every single day of our life we come before the Lord and we praise him in the morning for the lamb who was slain on our behalf. And we confess our sins. He, he says to us in Lamentations, morning by morning you are his mercies because great is his faithfulness. He says in Hebrews that we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand, who ever lives to pray for us. Every morning we arise, Jesus is praying for us. Every night before we go to our bed, Jesus is praying for us. So we've got every incentive to be in daily communion with the Lord Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on our behalf. The, 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 the Sabbath offerings, well, of Obviously, the Sabbath finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord's Day. I'm going to explain why that's the case in just a few moments. But on the Sabbath, if you like, the, the holy day of the week where we come to find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have got every reason to give our all to God from beginning to end. At the man's today over lunch, we're having a discussion of how, how can we order our lives? Well, the one appointed time that God has appointed for his people to assemble and to worship him that we know from the New Testament is the Lord's Day. There's no other requirements on us. And that means that for us as God's people, this ought to be the high day of our, the, the high point of our week. This ought to be the day we long for. This ought to be the day that when we gather, we gather and we know we want to give God all of our lives as living sacrifices in response to him giving us his son to atone for our sin. There's no gift, as we read in our call to worship, that we could ever give to God to repay him. But what he says in Romans 12 is, in view of God's mercy, offer your lives as living sacrifices, for this is your spiritual act of worship, holy and pleasing to God. Now what about the new moon offerings, the, the monthly offerings? Why is it we don't begin every month with a fresh offering. Well, if you get your Bible there, just turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. You'll, you'll find it on page 984. Now, if you, you go down to verse 16, Paul says, Do Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Don't let anyone pass judgment. There are Jewish Christians who, who might kept them. There's Gentile Christians didn't want to keep them. In the context of Colossians, there's people who have the Colossian heresy who are saying you need to give yourself to loads of different things to experience the fullness of Christ. But what Paul then goes on to say is this. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The new moon, the Sabbath, they're just a shadow of what is to come, Jesus. Every new month, God's people began it with giving a big offering to God, but it was anticipation that God in this new month was going to do a new thing among them, in them. 
Well, the new thing that God has ultimately done is he's given us Christ and he's given us new life in him. And so we don't need to begin every month in in, in that sense, holding a, a festival or an offering. But we must live every month in light of the fact that God is doing a new thing in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's our first point. That's the offerings. Now we're just going to move and consider the feasts. And, and this is something that I found really, really helpful. So God, in his wisdom, appointed how he was to be worshipped and he appointed when he was to be worshipped. Daily, weekly, monthly. And especially at the various feasts. And the first feast that is mentioned, you'll see there at verse 16, is the Feast of Passover. On the 14th day of the first month, so just the Jewish year began with the month Nyssa, and God appointed the Passover celebration from the very night that they had the Passover in Exodus from the Egypt when the angel of death passed over the houses that had put the blood of the lamb across their lintels. Just think about this. God wanted his people every year to begin it remembering how God had redeemed them. He wanted them to enter every new year with a real sense of their identity. We are a redeemed people. And for us to be delivered from slavery and bondage, it required a lamb to be slain. And it's blood to cover us so that the judgment and the wrath of God did not fall on us. So, so we, we know what happened at Passover. We could go back and read all of the details in Exodus, but we won't. Passover is the first feast. I need to point this out. When, as Israel grew and people lived all throughout the promised land, every male was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Every Jewish male was required to take part in this solemn feast. And the next feast we read about happens immediately after Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 17. And on the 15th day of the month is a feast. For seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. Now we we know, don't we, why unleavened bread was to be eaten? Because the people of God were to leave Egypt in a hurry and you needed to put yeast in the bread to wait for the yeast to rise so the bread would rise to get out of your bread. But they had to leave with their clothes on, with their sticks in hand, with their belts on, ready to go. So they ate unleavened bread. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul speaks of Christ as a Passover lamb, he there speaks of the leaven as sin in the church. And we must be very careful that we do not allow sin in the church to take root and become contagious and to affect all of us. We need to put it to death. Because Christ is a Passover lamb. And in light of his death, we put sin to death in our lives. But then moving on from this feast, we then come to the next feast, which is the feast of first fruits. Now fascinating, in verse 6, there's only passing reference made to this. On the day of the first fruits. 
you need to read Leviticus chapter 23 to get the full background of what happened in the day of first fruits. But what often happened was, following Passover, and in the midst of unleavened bread, following the night of Passover, on the first day of the week, three days later or so, after the Sabbath, on the Sunday morning, there would be the people called to celebrate the fact that God had brought a harvest in. So you would go take a sheaf from your harvest. You would take it up to the tabernacle or temple. You'd give it to the priest. And he would wave it and say, this is the first fruits of the new harvest. This is a sign of all that is to come in this harvest. We've got food. This is the gospel illusion that we need to just slam on the brakes and take cognizance of. Jesus Christ died on Passover. First fruits took place on the day after the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. Jesus Christ was raised on the feast of the first fruits. So when Paul speaks about Jesus Christ, he calls him the first fruits. He is the picture, the reality of all that is to come. All of his people will be raised like him. All of his people will be given a body like him. When all of his people see him, they'll be made like him in the twinkling of an eye. And B.B. Warfield, in one of his commentaries, he says something really fascinating. The day that Christ was in the grave, this is beautiful, was the Sabbath. He rested. But he also buried the Sabbath. The day for his people to worship and assemble and to praise his name is Resurrection Day. It's the day of new creation. And so, brothers and sisters, you need to know the reason why this is the high point, this should be the high point of our week, Sundays, is this is a foretaste of what is to come. When we gather in church like this, this is a taste of heaven. People from different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, different ages, male and female. This is the day that the Spirit raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the day dead. And this is the day that the Spirit promises to be in the midst of his people as they gather to worship. Life is given to us every Sunday when we gather in the name of Christ through the Spirit's power. This is a taste of the new creation to come. And by the way, this is the only explicitly appointed day given in the New Testament when we ought to gather publicly to worship God. Like this. So you've got the first feast of first fruits, but then that is followed by the feast of weeks. And I should point out in these feasts, some of them it mentions again and again that there will be a holy convocation, meaning in essence the whole day will be given over to the Lord. It will be another Sabbath, if you will. And so there's this feast of weeks. God's people gather 50 days after the end, to mark the end of the harvest. Now, does anybody know what the Feast of the Weeks is in the New Testament? Of course you do. Fifty days later, Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? The Spirit came down. And what was 
end of the harvest, but the beginning of the, the, the true harvest season, if you like, the Feast of Weeks, is when the church of the New Covenant was, was coming fully into action and color because people from all over the world were gathered there. And as the Spirit came upon the apostles, as the word went forth, everybody heard it in his language, and 3,000 people were added to the number of God's people, meaning God brought in his harvest. And it's just the beginning. This feast was a feast that was actually pointing forward to the day God is going to take a harvest from among the nations. It's incredible. God ordered all these Old Testament feasts and they are shadows of a reality that was to find their fullness and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then there's, and I should, so, so what you've got is Feast of Passover, first month. Um, Feast of the weeks and first fruits all happen in the first month through to the third month of the Jewish calendar. But then you get the final three feasts. And it begins with the Feast of Trumpets. And interestingly, they happen on the seventh month. And if you know anything about numbers, the, the perfect number in Scripture symbolically is the number seven. And if you were to read through this diligently, you can go home and do it tonight, the number seven is key. Seven lambs will be offered. Seven, seven, seven. Uh, and it's all pointing to Jesus, the, the perfect sacrifice who was to come. Now, on the Feast of Trumpets, the trumpet was to be blown at the beginning, on the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. Now, when this trumpet was blown on the seventh month, it was signaling to the whole of Israel ten days of repentance. Ten days of serious, serious consideration to the Lord. The Lord is coming. We need to prepare for him. And so for ten days, God's people would hear trumpets blown. They would give offerings to the Lord. And then there would come the day of atonement. And what's striking is in Numbers recording here of the Day of Atonement, there in verse 7 of chapter 29, we're only given a little detail of it. If you want to understand, if this is the high point easily in the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, the day where the high priest went into the temple and he sprinkled the blood of bulls over the altar and goats over the altar, and then he took his hands and he laid them on a goat, And as it were, the sins of the people and his own sins were transferred to this goat. And the goat was slain. And then he left the temple. And with that, he got the scapegoat, another goat, and he laid his hands on it. And that scapegoat went out into the wilderness, picturing God's people's sins being taken away. And this was a day where everybody knew, we need atonement. We need our sins to be paid for, blood to be shed. And we need our sins to be taken as far away as possible. Now, the really interesting thing is, as soon as the Day of Atonement ended, the high priest was like, see y'all next year. We're going to have to do this next year. Because it's just symbolic. The, the blood of the bulls sprinkled in the altar, it doesn't take away your sins. Ultimately, it can. It's just representative of what needs to be done and What happens to the two goats? Well, again, it's a perfect shadow. It's a perfect symbol of what Jesus Christ would come to do. But 
See you all next year so we can go through it. Now, what ended the Day of Atonement was the greatest feast in the Jewish calendar. And we've been working through John's Gospel, so we've looked at this, the Feast of Booths. This was the camping holiday of the Jews, where they all built their tents in Jerusalem, and they all remembered that in the wilderness that they lived in tents, and God provided for them bread from heaven, God provided water from the rock. And amazingly, God himself lived in a tent. Interestingly, I'm not sure if I fully agree with this, but it's definitely something worth thinking about. When was Jesus Christ born into this world? Was it December? Well, probably not. We don't know when he was born. Everyone wants to speculate, but What if he was born at the same time of the Feast of the Booths? Because John 1 begins by saying, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's literally he tabernacled among us. Why does John use that language? What's the feast that he might have in mind? Because his whole gospel is shaped by feasts. Feast of the Booths. What if Jesus came at the time of the Feast of the Booths? It was interesting to know about the Feast of the Booths. It was, out of all of the Jewish feasts, the most joyful. Man, they would go singing, dancing, praising the Lord. Lasted for eight days. Of seven days of worship, and then an eighth day of, of, of even more worship. And we, we looked at it when we were in John's Gospel and the Light Festival and all of that. But it was a, it was a, it was an occasion of pure joy in light of What has happened? God providing for his people as he led them through the wilderness. Can I just say, let's slam on the brakes. What does the Feast of the Booths point us to? God promises to provide and take care for us with his abundant grace. He promises to fill you and I up with the waters, with living waters from within that come from Jesus and flow into us by his spirit. God promises that in Jesus Christ, you and I will have the fullness of joy, reason to rejoice because of his atoning death. Because God came to earth and made his dwelling with us. He took on flesh and in Christ became our Passover lamb so that you and I would not have the judgment of God fall on us. All of these shadows, these sacrifices and feasts, they point us to the glorious reality that is Christ. So when Paul speaks about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Christ is our Passover lamb. In fact, if you've got a Bible there, just turn with me, right, just as we're drawing this to a close, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And in verse 2, I'll just read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, there, it's page 978. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The place that puts it so clearly that Jesus is the fulfillment and 
I'm actually hoping to preach a series through Hebrews, so I'm not going to steal my thunder, but it's Hebrews. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial system. He is the once and for all sacrifice. And unlike the high priest who had to literally transfer his own sins to the goat, Jesus Christ was the sinless saviour, the perfect lamb, as First Peter says, without blemish, who has redeemed his people, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. But the way that we need to end the sermon is this way. So if Jesus is our great Passover lamb, if he's the great atoning sacrifice, how then should you and I live in communion with God? If you grasp the gospel, that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and I mean, I mean millions upon millions of lambs and bulls and rams are offered, Jesus came and he fulfilled them all. And his once and for all death, He took away our sin so that we could have living relationship with God, communion with God. Here's my question. How should you and I live? Let's think about how Paul thought about it. So Romans chapter 12, call to worship, page 947. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So here's what he says. I appeal to you, church of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, by the mercies of God, in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you and I respond? What's the fruit, if you like, of Jesus' atonement on our behalf? It's that we who live in relationship with him give him our whole lives as a living sacrifice. That is, we die as we live. We die to self and we live unto him. Now, if you get your Bible there, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I'll, I'll just use it. Like this, this whole reality dominated how Paul thought of himself. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. If I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 6. You don't need to turn there. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. You know when Paul thought about his life of service to gospel ministry. He thought of his life as a sacrifice to God. Holy and pleasing to God. And so church... As we think of how Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system, we don't need to keep the feasts, the festivals. We need to keep his appointed day, the, the Lord's day, this day. We need to give it to him. We need to enjoy the newness of life he wants to impart in us. But all of this is just a little foretaste because the best is yet to come. The new creation, when we will live with him, we'll have a resurrection body with him. But as we wait for that day, how are you and how am I going to live? In light of his atoning death, 
we give him our all, day by day, Lord's day by Lord's day, month by month, year by year. And brothers and sisters, here's the reality. We won't do it perfectly. But his grace and his mercy is always for us. And it gives us fuel to go on living for him. So this sacrificial system that God's people were being pointed to as they prepared to enter the new land points us to Jesus. And as we've been pointed to Jesus and the abundance of what he has done for us speaks and calls us of how we will live for him today. We worship him and we worship him by giving him the sacrifice of our lips, praise, and the sacrifice of our lives, everything for his praise and glory. And here's the wonder of it. When you live as God intends you to live in relationship with Jesus Christ, you're a sweet-smelling aroma before him. God loves the smell of his children. God delights in you as you live for his glory. It's why he saved you in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your incredible wisdom of how you taught the the ancient people of Israel more about who you are, more about who they were, and more about how they could live in relationship with you. Lord, we we confess that we are so often slow to think through their, their ordered year, their appointed times of worship, their appointed sacrifices, and yet we realize it speaks to us. Jesus. And it speaks to us of how we ought to worship you. And so we pray as we've grasped something more of what was done of old so that we can grasp the reality of what was done in Jesus for us, that we might go from here and give you our whole lives. God, thank you that this morning we began by gathering and praising your name as the sun rose. And thank you now that as the sun set in the twilight, we close this day by praising your name. And we pray that as we begin this new week with you, on this, the first day of the week, this resurrection day, that we would go into this week with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to live for you Monday through Saturday until we gather again to sing your praises and to receive the ministry of your Spirit through your word to us. Thank you so much for the way that you've ordered us in your wisdom and in your goodness and in your grace. And thank you that tomorrow morning when we wake up, we will have new mercy for a new day. In Jesus' name, amen.